I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. That's going to be our scripture uh, reading this morning. And uh, there'll be a second passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but we'll wait to turn there. Let me pray and then read our passage, and then we'll continue by looking into how this passage connects with the New Testament and with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, When we look at the world about us, uh, we see a crazy world. We see a world of great conflict. Uh, We see common sense would say human beings ought to strive so hard uh, to be good to each other because that would make the world such a better place. But in fact, what we see all around us are people looking at other people and wondering, what can I do to protect myself? What can I do to get ahead? What can I do to aggrandize my own life? Conflict is continual. Uh, People uh, doing others evil, constant. And that's the history of the world. There's only one ultimate solution. It's what you've done in your son, the Lord Jesus, to deal with the injustices of this world and to save and deliver a people for yourself. So we pray that as we come to your word this morning, we might recognize Christ, grace, your sovereign ruling over this world, the fact that you are just and holy God, and therefore there are judgments in this world. But in accordance with your grace and your mercies, you have saved a people for yourself through your Son. Father, as those who have by your grace come to know this, give us hearts to listen to your word, how it would instruct us and teach us this day, how we'd be conformed to the image of your Son, and desire more and more to live for him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fashioned, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Last Thursday, uh, the 6th of June, uh, Al Mohler, uh, many of you know who Al Mohler is, a, a great Christian theologian, uh, in his uh, daily podcast called The Briefing, he talked about the fact that it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. He pointed to a historian who essentially has said about this event, this is the greatest day in all of history, D-Day, the, the day in which the Allied forces crossed the English Channel, landed on the beaches of Normandy uh, at the cost of some 4,000 lives and another 12,000 or so casualties uh, to set up what eventually becomes within a short while the conquering of the Third Reich and the resolution of the Second World War in Europe. The greatest day in all of human history. Uh, we remember uh, some time ago that uh, uh, one of our newscasters called this generation the greatest generation. But for us as Christians, Al Mohler says, would we count this as the greatest day in all of history? And the answer is no, we wouldn't. And uh, that made me think about, well, what would we count as the greatest day in all of human history from a Christian standpoint? I don't know. I don't think we can say that there's one day in particular that's the greatest day. Uh, but we might put several in the top five. The day of creation. Um, certainly the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Maybe his coming again. Maybe we ought to throw the birth of Jesus in there. The virgin birth. Virgin birth. But in all of this, we ought not to miss that in the Bible, and from its perspective, the Passover has to be put into the top five great days in all of human history. And the New Testament makes the tightest connection between the Passover, in which God delivers the Jews out of Egypt, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in terms of the establishment of our salvation, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant inauguration. So, we think about this. When we come to Exodus chapter 12 and we read it, Jesus would say, as he taught his apostles. Look at this. 
from its full perspective in terms of what it preaches about Christ. The message of the Old Testament Passover is a message about God's free grace and redemption. The redemption of his people, his people whom he delivers by the blood of the Lamb. Those are the main ideas. Those are the key themes. The idea that that God is going to do something here with Israel that throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it's going to become the, the great symbol of God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in terms of God's free grace, in terms of God's deliverance, in terms of God's judgment, in terms of a deliverance and salvation through the blood of the Lamb. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see three particular big themes that show up in this passage. The first would be the idea of a new creation. The second would be the idea of judgment. And the third would be the idea of deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. And having looked at those three themes, we will see how they're connected to what Paul says in the New Testament and then how they're connected to our own observance of the Lord's table today. Now, in the first place, this idea of a new creation shows up at the very beginning of Exodus 12. Because what does God say there? Look look at verse 2. God says in verse 2 that this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, what God is doing here is he's establishing a new calendar for Israel. Something Israel shared with most of the cultures of the ancient Near East at that time is what we call an agricultural calendar. An agricultural calendar would see the end of the year coming with the last harvest. And the beginning of the new year would come immediately after the last harvest. So that would make the end of the year in the fall. And the beginning of the new year also in the fall. But we're in the springtime. And so God is basically saying to the Israelites, in this particular month, you are to start your new year. Now, why is he doing that? What's the symbolism of all of that? What's what's the meaning of this? Well, this is when God is going to, as it were, bring his people who are under the bondage and slavery of the house of Egypt. He's going to bring them out of that situation and he's going to take them into freedom and into the promised land. And this marks a brand new change for them. What they were before enslaved to the Egyptians, they're no longer going to be enslaved to the Egyptians. By virtue of this, God is saying A new year, a new beginning, a new creation. Mark your birth as a nation from this point forward. Mark your birth as those who were free from the bondage of Egypt from this point forward. Mark who you are from this point forward. You're not the slaves of Egypt. You are the delivered and the redeemed of the Lord. That's the significance of this. That's the significance of of changing that. Now, I want to say something to all of you. Not every one of you can remember 
when you passed from death to life and became a Christian. And some of you were baptized in infancy. But what the Bible would say to us is that no one is ever redeemed who doesn't pass from death to life. No one is redeemed who doesn't pass from death to life. We died in Adam. No one who remains united to Adam ever, ever finds salvation in heaven. Jesus said, with respect to everyone, you must be born again. John chapter 3. Unless you are born from the Spirit of God from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And the Old Testament picture of that is Israel in bondage being delivered by God so that they start a new life, they begin their life again. The calendar marks that out to testify to the fact that what you were as slaves is not what God purposed and designed for you. And of course, in terms of the story, going back to the calling to Abraham, and then the calling to Moses, in light of the calling to Abraham, this is all of God's covenantal and gracious working with his people. And that's important. You have to connect the Passover event to God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Remember, when God calls Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, the fact that this change from slavery to becoming free is all of grace is something that God emphasizes to Israel so very, very strongly before they move into the promised land. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, which historically gets written just before Moses passes away, before Moses turns the leadership over to Joshua, before Joshua takes uh, the people of the sons of Israel into the promised land, God has Moses instruct the Israelites this way. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, through Moses, God says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All of God's doing. A couple of chapters later, Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out before you, speaking of the people of, the, of Canaan, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. 
not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is giving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Passover marks a new birth. The Passover marks God acting on Israel's behalf. The Passover marks God's action totally of God's free grace toward Israel. They are not a righteous people. And in the wilderness wanderings, they show themselves not to be a righteous people. But God set his love upon them. God gave them grace undeserved to deliver them out of their bondage to Egypt in fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. Now, again and again throughout the history of Israel, this big event, Passover, Exodus, this event and what happens here is described in the language of redemption. It's described as deliverance. It's described as salvation. It's pictured as an action of God's great grace toward them again and again and again. And all of this language of salvation gets tied into the Exodus. It gets tied into the Passover. And that's tremendously significant. Uh, even when it speaks about the Israelites as the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, as God being their father, they being God's children, they being adopted by God, they receiving the inheritance of God, all of those terms that we connect with their salvation, their deliverance. In the New Testament, all of that language gets applied to the work of Christ. In the New Testament, all of that kind of language gets applied to what God does in and through His Son. Which is why hymn writers often make this connection. Uh, in the hymn we just sang, the connection was made. Uh, in a hymn we're going to sing, uh, it says, Where the Paschal blood is poured, Paschal meaning Passover, where the Passover blood is poured, death's dark angel sheaths his sword. Israel's host triumphant go through the wave that drowns the foe. Right there, the Passover in Exodus. Praise we Christ, whose blood was shed. Passover victim, Passover bread. With sincerity and love, eat we manna from above. When we think about what God does in the Passover, what God does inaugurating his people in this way, we're led to think of Christ. Now, the second great theme, though, that occurs in this passage is judgment. This is important. Uh, we shouldn't think that, that God looks at this world as some kind of celestial Santa Claus. Now, even Santa Claus, we're told, is making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. So even when the Santa Claus mythology was developed within our culture, it was with the idea that rotten children ought not to get blessed at Christmas time, and it really was an encouragement for little kids to be good, especially in November and December, as they feel Christmas time coming along. It was an encouragement for them to straighten up their act because you might not get at Christmas time what you want to receive. 
At least that's the way it was when I was a child, you know, 60-some years ago. I guess nowadays it doesn't matter how children are. Everybody gets their gifts. But there was a sense of justice, a sense that this world needs what? Justice. That with all the conflict going on in the world, with all the trouble that's going on in the world, things need to be made right. When people are treated wrongly, there, there ought to be some way to deliver them, but the people who've treated them wrongly ought to be held accountable for it. Now, the chapter that we're reading, and really this whole part of, of the book of Exodus, uh, deeply speaks to a God who cares about justice with respect to the nations of the world. And in particular, God's concern is justice on behalf of Israel. Now remember, God isn't saying to his people, you are a wonderful group of people. No, but he is going to say that how they have been treated is desperately wicked. So, we, we look at Exodus and we remember that judgment is coming because the Egyptians are wrongly afflicting God's people. Back in chapter 3 of Exodus, when God calls Moses to be the deliverer, he says to, to Moses himself, I am the God of your fathers and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've surely seen the affliction of my people, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God's going to act for his people because his people are being treated in a manner that's wicked and unjust. And furthermore, uh, as Moses gets closer to confronting Pharaoh, God says to Moses, and I'm going to do this in acts of great judgment. So in chapter 6, 6, Moses is supposed to say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, of course, the great acts of judgment are all the plagues that God visits upon the Israelites. Uh, all of those things, excuse me, upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh. You know, when you're preparing a message, you always wonder, am I going to get all the things right in terms of what I say? Um, and I'm just glad I caught myself there. All the judgments are going to come upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. Now, if you look at verse 12 in chapter 12, God gets very specific about these great judgments. There we read that God's judgment, well, let me read it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, speaking of Passover night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, note, what God is doing here it's not only judgment upon Egypt and especially upon Pharaoh, but it's judgment against the gods in whom the Egyptians trusted. Egyptians were pagans. 
they worshipped a multitude of gods. God's judging all those gods. In fact, there is a strong correlation between all of the plagues, the ten plagues that God visits, and, and, and a number of the gods that the Egyptians were worshipping. So it's clear that God is waging war in judgment upon the religion of Egypt. So basically, as Moses and Aaron again and again come before Pharaoh to say, let my people go, and then a plague comes, uh, that plague, God's judgment, is essentially saying to Pharaoh, you have trusted in this God. Watch what I do with this God. You have trusted in this God. Look at what I'm doing to this God. You've trusted in this God again and again and again. You think that somehow these gods can save you. You are deceived. Now, I want you to understand how significant this is. Again and again, God was declaring his truth, his judgments, his power, his message to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians. He was saying to them, you have trusted in those gods who are not ultimately gods at all. Your religion is deceiving you. But in that deception, you felt you had the right to enslave and imprison my people. God keeps saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh wickedly and stubbornly holds the Israelites from leaving. Now, what's interesting about this, again, in terms of the history of Israel, and then into the New Testament, this slavery in Egypt, belonging to cruel taskmasters, being in bondage, suffering, having masters over them, that becomes a symbol of what the bondage to sin is like. So what God is doing historically symbolically represents what our fall into sin in Adam and Eve has done to all of us. The greatest enslavement, the cruelest thing that can ever happen to any of you is to be in captivity to sin. Your greatest enemy is indwelling sin. That which so greatly compromises anything and everything you might desire out of life is traceable back to the principle of sin that we inherited from our first parents and which Jesus came to address in his life, death, and resurrection. So when we think about what the Egyptians were experiencing, when we think about the Israelites are experiencing under the Egyptians, we need to recognize that we too, at one point in our lives, were slaves to sin. In fact, Jesus said in his controversial 
encounter with the Jewish leadership in John chapter 8. Everyone who sins, and by that he means lives in a life of sin, is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That then comes to the third theme, the third element out of Exodus chapter 11. And that is that God has his deliverance for the Israelites, and that deliverance is through the blood of the Lamb. That's the whole significance of the Passover Lamb that this passage talks about. So God says to the Israelites, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So there's this judgment of death as the tenth plague that has been threatened that God is going to execute, and it's going to happen at the middle of the night on this particular evening. But then God has said he has a way of making a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. He's going to distinguish them. One are going to experience judgment. The other are going to experience deliverance. And the way that he's going to do this is what Passover is all about. God's going to protect and deliver his people from judgment through the blood of the Lamb. So he gives very specific instructions several of which have major significance. First, it's the selection of the lamb. This is to be a male lamb that is one year old, which is virtually full grown, and it's to be without blemish. Uh, This lamb without blemish is to symbolize perfection. Every household was to have its lamb, and if a household was too small, then households were to share The point is that all the households were to have this lamb and they were all to slay the lamb at the same time at twilight. So there's going to be, as this this day passes from light to darkness, a lamb is going to be slain in all of the households of the Israelites. So that's the first thing. The sacrifice is going to be made. Secondly, what do they do then with the slain lamb? Well, first of all, they collect its blood. Moses tells the Israelites, verse 7, what they're supposed to do. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they live, in which they're going to eat. So in every household, uh, the blood of this lamb that's slain is put on the doorpost, put on the, the top, not the threshold, but the lentil. And then in verse 22, Moses amplifies this, how it's specifically supposed to be done. He says in verse 22, Take a bunch of hyssop, these branches, with leaves, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, where they've collected the blood, and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Once this is done, no one is to leave because now the house is set apart. The house is sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. This is their protection. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
Basically, God is saying that when he sees the blood of the Passover, he's going to pass over that household. No plague is going to destroy the firstborn within that house. He's striking down all the firstborn of Egypt, but the blood of a lamb is the means of deliverance for his people. Thirdly, the entire lamb was to be eaten. Uh, It says in verse 10 that if not all of it was eaten, then the remainder was to be burned. None of the lamb was to remain until the morning. The idea was that the lamb was to be completely consumed. Either those who were part of the households were to eat it completely, but if there was any left over, then they were to burn it, but the lamb was to be completely consumed. The idea being that this lamb, since it's a symbolic ceremony, this lamb was to be a substitute for them. There was death in every Egyptian household. There was a death in every Israelite household. In every Egyptian household, there was the death of the firstborn son, Pharaoh to the handmaids, to all of the beasts. In the house of all the Israelites, there was the death of the lamb. The lamb is that which substitutes, dies, bloodshed, blood placed at the doorway as a sign that they're trusting in the death of the lamb. The Egyptians have no one to trust in at all. And the complete consummation of the lamb was necessary to show that it took a complete sacrifice to make this possible. Fourth, another significant part of this Passover has to do with leaven. Now, leaven is not a sinful thing at all. Leaven is simply yeast that enables the bread to the dough to rise and to be baked. But the use of leaven in the baking process means that from the time you first mix the flour and then add the yeast, it's going to take several hours before the bread is ready to be baked and eaten in that way. A leaven spreads all the way through the dough. But what God is indicating here with unleavened bread is this. We're going to make a bread that must be consumed immediately. Which is to say, this isn't yesterday's bread. This isn't bread from the day before or the day before. This is not old bread. What the Israelites are going to eat at the Passover meal is entirely brand new bread. It was made right then. It has no continuity With any bread that comes before, it is absolutely new to symbolize in this way an absolutely new dimension to life. You're going to be protected by the blood of the lamb. You're going to eat, which is an act of faith, the blood of the lamb itself. You're going to bake this bread that's entirely brand new because it's symbolizing the newness of what God is doing with you you. It's not that there's a greater holiness to unleavened bread, but God is using this as a symbol then of his expectations for his people. 
How are you supposed to understand what this event that is happening? Something brand new. A new life, a new creation, a new direction. But the primary theme, Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb by which we are delivered. Now, let me take us to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's going to start out by saying this, your boasting is not good. Now, why is that? So some context here. The church at Corinth had a particular problem. It had many problems, but it had this particular problem that Paul addresses in chapters 5 and 6. Paul describes it this way. You have someone in your church who's actually having an affair with his father's wife, your stepmother. And Paul is saying, that's so scandalous, we scarcely hear that among the pagans. And he said, you're, you're tolerating this. You're acting as though this has no great impact on who you are as a church or as the people of God. You're acting as though somehow this is compatible with what it means to be Christians. The reason we know that is Paul's concern in verse 5 is, your boasting is not good. That is to say, they're, they're talking about this in such a way that they're not broken and repenting of this terrible situation. So, but in that context... Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 5, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Which is to say, um, that which is bad for this family and what's going on there, uh, this could actually infiltrate and hurt the entire church. In fact, it will infiltrate and hurt the entire church. Because that's the nature of yeast. That's the nature of leaven when it works through the bread. A little bit contaminates everything. So verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Which is a way of saying, you've got to deal with this situation. You've got to repent of the situation and become what you're supposed to be. Because then he says that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Meaning you really are to be this new kind of unleavened bread. And then he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Paul is connecting what Jesus did, Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, and he's saying, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us makes all the difference. Christ changes who we are from what we are, what we were. He makes us different. And then he goes on in verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the festival or the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what are the parallels? Well, the issue of leaven. Now the leaven becomes a symbol of sin. Not that Leaven is always a symbol of sin, but now it becomes a symbol of sin. If we allow sin within the body of Christ, and we don't do everything we can with one another to say, our greatest enemy 
is sin, our sinfulness. Our greatest enemy is that which removes us from God. Our greatest enemy is that which, which brings us alienation with other people. It's, disobedience to God is awful, hurtful, so spiritually damaging. So we ought to be addressing it. Paul says the answer is to, to truly deal with it in a manner that's godly and right. Why should we do this? Because as Christians, we're not just individuals. We really are a body. What hurts one of us spiritually could then wind up hurting the rest of us spiritually too. We've got to be concerned that we love one another enough to remove this leaven from the midst. That's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. But the most important parallel is when Paul says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Saying in that, God's ultimate judgment on sin for us endured by Christ. The reason why we can be that new unleavened bread, the reason why we can be those who are new, the reason why we can be adopted into God's family, the reason why grace comes to us that we've not earned or deserved, the reason why there is forgiveness is because Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the shedding of his blood has taken on our behalf the judgments of God against our sin. And in essence, Paul says, that has got to make all the difference. If this is true of you, then you are to live out the Christian life in sincerity and truth. And that brings us to the Lord's table this morning. The Lord's table is our reminder again and again of the connection between what Jesus did on our behalf, inaugurating a new covenant, body broken for us, blood shed for us, and what God had done with Israel 1,500 years earlier. Redemption of his people from the bondage of Egypt Redemption by Jesus from the bondage of sin. When we come to the Lord's table, we are confessing these truths. And we are once again saying, our faith for salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, help us then this morning to love the truth of what you've done for us in your Son. And even as we come to the table this morning, remind us again of your goodness for us. All that you've done for us, we have not deserved. All that you've done for us, you've done in Jesus. All that you've done, you've done keeping your promises to your people. For that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the Lord's table, uh, let us remember 
that it's the Lord Jesus himself who has set apart the bread and then the fruit of the vine for the sacred purposes for which he first set them apart. Hear the words of institution as we find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul has written these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Notice that the Lord's table combines two things. Salvation through the blood of Christ and a concern about judgment. Pharaoh refused to recognize God for who he was. Paul gives these instructions saying there's a recognition that we must have when we come to the Lord's table. We must recognize that the bread is set apart, the fruit of the vine is set apart as emblems, signs, symbols of what? Of Christ. Of Christ coming into this world in fulfillment of all the promises of God to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And this is a symbolic representation of the gospel. This is a symbolic representation of what God did in Christ, just like the Passover supper was a symbolic representation of what God was doing for his ancient people Israel. This is the fulfillment of Passover. Christ is the Passover lamb. And Paul is saying that if anyone partakes of this but doesn't recognize this gospel, then instead of being covered by the blood, he exposes himself to the judgment of God. And that is why in our tradition we say again and again, come to the table if you recognize the gospel in the bread and in the wine. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to the table. The table has been instituted by Christ for you. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't really know him, you can't see the bread and the wine representing who he is. Therefore, abstain, or you'll eat and drink judgment upon yourself. It doesn't take perfect Christians to come. It takes those who believe and trust in Jesus to come. Partaking is once again an act of faith in believing the gospel. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for all that you have done in Christ for us. And even now, giving us this very simple but symbolic meal that represents to us the gospel. Even preaching to us 
the gospel. And for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.